Well, thank you, James and Patsy, for the reminder of that incredible truth of who we are in Christ, that we belong to Him, and that He leads us every day, and how our lives would be different if we would cling to that truth daily, wouldn't it? Hope you were encouraged by the kids this morning. That blessed me to see the kids singing to us what they had learned. And so I hope now you get stuck in your head, God is over the moon as much as I have the last few days with with the truths that they have been seeing. What what just a a blessing is to see our young people getting those truths in their mind. And parents of the young people who have been at VBS, we're praying specifically for you that God will give you many conversations with your kids, even this afternoon and the days to come in light of what they learned this week. These gospel seeds that were planted and watered, will come to fruition very soon. And that God would give you as the moms and the dads the opportunity to answer your kids' questions about the gospel, the things they were talking about this week. And we're praying that you would have those opportunities even this afternoon and throughout this week ahead. And we're continuing our journey through the gospel of John this morning. You knew that because we've been in John for a while now, so no surprise there. As we're working through the gospel of John, we're in the, coming to the end of chapter 6 today. And I just want to remind us of why John wrote the book. We said it over and over, but it's so important for us. John wrote this book according to John twenty thirty one, said that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. And so what I want to remind us as you think about that, the question is who is going to believe? John says these are written so that you may believe. This is written so that his original readers might believe. It was written so that you and I today, reading the Gospel of John, might believe, and not just believe anything, but believe that Jesus is in fact the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we would have life in his name. That's why I keep saying over and over again that the Gospel of John demands a response. Because it's not written just for intellectual knowledge. It's written that we, you and I as well as, as, as the original hearers, might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so it confronts us. And it makes us come to the question again this morning, do I really believe that Jesus is the Christ? And do I really have life in his name? We well, see today that not all do experience that. We're going to see today many who will turn. Today is a turning point because many will turn and walk away from Jesus. But we'll see some still respond with genuine faith. So if you're not there, go ahead and turn or find in your Bible app John chapter 6. I want to remind us that what we're at today is still in the same 24-hour period we've been talking about for the last two weeks. So while three weeks have transpired for us, only 24 hours has happened in this past we've looked at. In in the same 24-hour period, we've seen Jesus feed the 5,000 men plus the women and children. We've seen Jesus leave when they're trying to make him king. We see him send his disciples into the storm. We see Jesus walk on the water to them. We see the boat arrive at the other side. We see Jesus beginning to teach about the bread of life. And we saw last week how we must feast on him and feed and drink from him to experience eternal life. And then what we're getting today is still in that same 24-hour window when all of these things happen. As we come to the end of chapter 6 today, we come to a turning point where the large crowds that are following him begin to dwindle. And we come to a turning point where the resistance grow and many begin to turn away from him. So with that in view, we're going to come to John chapter 6. We'll start in verse 59. Can I ask you to stand, please, and honor the reading of the word of God? John chapter 6, we're going to be in verse 59 and go to the end of the chapter, verse 71 today. And I'll be reading out the English Standard Version. John six fifty-nine. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. 
So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for your word. And Lord, as we finish up John 6 this morning, what we've been looking at these last several weeks about what it means to believe, would you once again open our eyes to it? Spirit of God, would you come illuminate this text to us? We might understand in deeper ways, even today, what it means to believe, what it means to know you. And may you give us grace that we might run hard after you as a result of it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. And you may be seated. Well, my main idea for you this morning from the sermon is really a question that the original hearers had to answer, and that we do as well. And it's that simply this. When confronted with the true nature of belief, will we walk away or will we see Jesus as our only hope? When confronted with the true nature of belief, will we walk away or will we see Jesus as our only hope? Because this passage is really a passage of a confrontation of people being confronted with what belief really is. Again, think back to the last two weeks. This has all been one teaching of Jesus, one discourse of Jesus. We saw two weeks ago that our spiritual need cannot be satisfied by anything we do. There's no work we can do that would satisfy our spiritual need. Our spiritual need is only satisfied by remaining in Jesus. And then last week we saw that anyone who takes Jesus in their inmost being, that's what it meant to eat and drink of him, to take him into their inmost being, experience the eternal life now and forever. So what we've looked at the last two weeks, that's what the crowd has been hearing in the few minutes before what's happening here. And so with that in view, let's look at the confrontation that happens and how the crowd responds. Look at back at verses 59 and 60. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? So let me clarify here for us what's going on. It says his disciples heard this. This is different than his 12 disciples that we'll see in a few minutes. This is a very loose term that's describing all those who had loosely attached themselves to Jesus' teaching. This was the crowd. This is the group that had seen him multiply the loaves and the fishes, the crowd that had followed him across the lake. This is the crowd that had been listening to him talk about eating and drinking of his flesh and his blood. And this is the crowd that's here. This is the crowd that basically did not believe. And when they hear what Jesus teaches them about you can't work to get to God, that it's only in believing in him that you can find eternal life, how do they respond? Verse 60, they say, this is a hard saying. And when we hear the word hard, this is not hard to understand. That's not the word that's used here. But they're saying this is hard to accept. The problem was it wasn't that they had trouble understanding the image Jesus was using. The problem was they didn't like what they were hearing. They knew what he was saying, and it made them mad. It was hard for them to accept. It was so contrary to any of their understanding of who God was and how to know him. They just say, this is hard to accept. And so their response then is, how, who can listen to it? In other words, who can appreciate it? It's so different. They don't appreciate it. They don't believe it. They don't internalize it. They refuse to take it in. And what do they do instead? Verse 61 shows us. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this. Jesus tells them they have to believe on him, that they can't work their way to God. And what do they do? They grumble. If you remember last week, he looked at them grumbling, and that's discontentment. They don't like what they're hearing. It's a murmuring in the crowd because they don't like what Jesus is saying. And then Jesus confronts them head on with this, with this question at the end of verse 61. Do you take offense at this? Friends, they were offended. They were caught in a difficulty. They've been loosely following Jesus. They, in their minds, were believing in Jesus. But as we saw earlier in John, this was not a belief that Jesus believed in in their lives. They were confronted with the truth of who Jesus was, and now they're ready to turn because they don't like it. 
And friends, I can't help but wonder how much is like that today in our culture as well. There have been people who have been taught, if you just pray this prayer, it doesn't matter what you do the rest of your life, you're going to go to heaven, don't worry about it. How many people in our culture have come to Jesus because they've been taught that God wants you to get from birth to death in the safest, happiest, easiest, most comfortable way possible. God wants you to be rich and healthy and never have problems. And they've bought into something that's not what Jesus came to offer. That's not true belief. They're loosely following Jesus, much like this crowd that's been following Jesus because they want their stomachs filled. Because they want a miracle worker to overthrow the Roman government. They were following Jesus for what they got from him, not because of who he really was. They did not understand belief. And when they were confronted by Jesus with what belief really meant, they turned and ran. When they were confronted with the fact they could not work their way to God, they turned and ran. When they were confronted with the fact that belief meant submitting to him and following him, they turned and run on this. But they're not the only ones who are confronted with belief. We're going to see more of what happens in a minute. But go ahead and jump down to verse 67. Because Jesus confronts his closest ones as well. Verse 67, Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? He asked his inner circle, the ones closest to him, who've heard and seen more than anyone else has seen and heard, do they want to turn back to their old way of life or do they want to follow him as well? And we'll see what these two groups do. But before we get to that, I want you to see what they're confronted with. And that's what we all need to be confronted with, the, the true nature of belief, what it really means to believe. Look back at verses 62 to 65 here. Verse 62. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. There are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, that is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. He's confronting them with the true nature of belief. Verse 62 is fascinating here. He basically is telling them, if you're stumbling over this teaching, that you have to eat of me and drink of me, this metaphor for internalizing and saying, if you're stumbling over this, you're going to stumble over the cross a whole lot more. If you can't get the fact that salvation is not by works, it's a gift from God, you're not going to get what happens at the cross. And the imagery that John uses here in describing what he said is when, in verse 62, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Like I told you earlier in John, when we hear the word ascension, we typically are thinking of the ascension back to heaven. But when John uses it, he ties it together with the crucifixion, the being put up on the cross, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, and the ascension. He sees it all in one package. So when Jesus is speaking here of the ascension, you need to keep in mind all that happens and what we celebrate at Easter. And, he, and so Jesus is telling them, listen, if you are having a hard time with this, if you're offended by saying you must believe on me, how much more will you be offended? How much more will you have trouble when you see what's about to happen. But isn't that what Paul told us in 1 Corinthians? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're basically told that the cross is a stumbling block for some people. And that's basically what Jesus is saying here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. I just want to read a few verses for you in light of what we're seeing here. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who, who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. And here you go, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And this is what Christ is telling there. You think this is a stumbling block right now? Then me saying you have to eat of me and drink of me, you have to internalize me, you have to believe in me now. He's saying, wait till the cross. That is the true stumbling block for you. 
But Jesus carries on here and gives an incredible description of what true belief is to counter all their false notions of what it really means to believe. He's going to carry on what he's been saying, what we've seen the last two weeks, and that is salvation is all of grace. It's nothing of our works. It's all of his doing. It's what he has done. He's going to obliterate any works-based righteousness. He's going to obliterate any idea they can save themselves, any notion of self-help. Look back at verse 63. And it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And I love the way this is described here. Why, how do we believe? Well, not because of anything in me. If we believe, it's not because we're so smart. It's not because we're smarter than other people. That's the flesh. It's not because we're wiser than other people. It's the flesh. It's not because of anything in us. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The New American Standard translates it, the flesh profits nothing. This is a great imagery for us. There's nothing in us and out of ourselves that can get to God. And is there hope? Well, yes, verse 63 carries that hope for us. It is the Spirit, then, who gives life. And how does the Spirit give life? Verse 63, he illuminates the words of Jesus. Again, look at verse 63. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The Spirit of God uses the words of Jesus to illuminate them, to make them come alive to us. And notice, Jesus' words do not contain spirit and contain life. His words are spirit. His words are life. Literally, it says in the Greek, spirit they are, life they are. They contain the very life that we need because they are the life we need. Our fallen flesh can't help, but the Spirit of God takes the words of God and applies them so that we might believe. And so, friends, when this crowd is confronted with this, with a true nature of belief that belief is nothing of them, belief is nothing of their own flesh, that their flesh contributes nothing, profits nothing, that it's all grace, it's all Jesus, all the Spirit of God taking the Word of God and applying it to people's life who the Father has chosen, the Father has drawing. Those are the ones who believe. When they hear this, they're offended. And they do walk away. And look at how this group walks away. Verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. After this, for this reason, because of what Jesus has just said, because of grace, because of pointing them to that they can contribute nothing to their salvation, the salvation of all of God, because of that truth, because of the truth that Jesus is the only hope, they turn, they walk away from him. This idea of turning back is in a physical sense, yes, they're turning away from the synagogue. Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. You can picture him in the synagogue teaching them. And he's talking about, you must eat of me. You must drink of me. The Father draws you. You do not believe because the Father is not drawing you. And they hear this and they literally turn their back and they start walking away from him because they're tired of hearing it. They're offended by it. But it's not just the physical walking away. This is the imagery of returning to their previous way of life. They're not just walking out of the synagogue. They're returning to a way of life without Jesus in it. They're returning back to a life where there's no belief in Jesus, no demands of believing in him, to a life lived as they want to live, a life with no Jesus in it. Jesus was not what they expected. He was not what they wanted. And they did not want to believe in the way that he called them to believe. And so they literally walk away from him and they literally go back to a life where they don't have to deal with Jesus. They turn their back on him. And again, I can't help but wonder, is it any different today? Again, so many people have been taught... Just pray this prayer, God wants you to be rich, all that stuff I was mentioning earlier. And when they realize that that's not what belief is, that belief is following God who may send us into the storms for his, good, for his good purposes in us and in others, a God who doesn't necessarily promise to bless us with physical riches in this life, but a God who is right there with us in the storms, when they realize that it's belief that calls us to lordship, to submitting to him, how many today turn and walk away as well when they see the demands of following Jesus? because they've never really followed him. There's a theologian of the last century who says something, I think is a great summary of this. He said, To this day, 
many a man's refusal of Christ comes not because Christ puzzles and baffles his intellect, but because Christ challenges and condemns his life. And let's not again. To this day, many a man's refusal of Christ comes not because Christ puzzles and baffles his intellect, but because Christ challenges and condemns his life. And I wonder how many today give up because they don't, want to, they don't want a belief that caused them to put off their old way of, way of life and put on following Jesus. They don't want a belief that caused them to put off selfishness in marriage and put on serving their spouse. That caused them to put off anger in their life and put on love to others. That caused them to put off their addictions and put on righteousness. That caused them to put off living for self and put on living for others. That put off trying and striving to get to God and put on righteousness that comes as a gift from God. And they don't want that and they walk away. To this day, many a man's refusal of Christ comes not because Christ puzzles and baffles his intellect, but because Christ challenges and condemns his life. But thankfully, then and now, not all walk away. There are some who are taught by God, to use the imagery earlier in John 6. There are some who, have, who see the truth of God's words illuminated by the Spirit, who are drawn, who have experienced God's grace. And we see that here in verses 67 through 69. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, at the outset, let me just say, Jesus' question is not a question of despair. I think we can read our intentions and motivations into it and be like, do you want to go away also? Like, everyone's leaving me. Please, no, don't go. That's not what's going on here. This is not a question of despair. Again, when we had, in our translations, we lose something. The Greek construction was phrased in such a way that a, a negative answer was, was expected to the question. Greek questions can be phrased where the answer, the expectation is there. He's saying, I know it. You don't want to go away, do you? You know, and of course not. He knows their hearts. He's God. He knows everything. What's he's doing? He's giving them a chance to confess their belief. When all of the people around them are turning their backs and saying, I want a life without Jesus. I'm done with this guy. Forget this. This is not what I want. He's giving them a chance to kind of stand for him and say, yes, this is what we believe because he already knows what's in their heart and confess they do. Peter gives an amazing answer to this question. Look back at his answer to the question, verse 68. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And here the word we is emphatic. He's stressing, he's saying, we have believed. We have come to know. He's saying it doesn't matter what everyone else has done. We, as for me and my household, if you think of the Old Testament imagery, we will serve the Lord. We don't care if everyone else has left. We know we are believing. We are here with you. And in these words here, we have believed. We have come to know. These are perfect tense words. That means there was an action with ongoing results. This is not we have believed one time. This is we have believed and we have kept on believing. It's changed us. It's not that we just knew at one point and now we're kind of doubting. But it's we have come to a place of knowing who Jesus is and we are steadfast in knowing who Jesus is. And notice the imagery he uses to describe that there in verse 69. We have believed and continue to believe. We have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This beautiful term that echoes the Old Testament, the Holy One of Israel. Peter's confessing with the best words he's struggling for, the highest possible honor to get to Jesus, to confess that he believes that Jesus is really God. And I want you to notice something here in Peter's response. He sees Jesus as his only hope. Jesus is not plan B. Jesus is not something he runs to if nothing else works out. Jesus is his one and only hope. And he conveys that in the form of a question, to whom shall we go? He's saying, how can we leave you? No one else gives life. 
No one else can satisfy. There is nothing else we can run to that would meet our needs. We have you and you alone. No one else is the Holy One of God. He's saying we're satisfied in you, Jesus. We've, to the image we saw last week, we've eaten, we've believed, we've come, all those images for belief. And he's saying, why would we ever turn back now? And the closest I can get to in a, in a very limited way in terms of even our food and our appetites, because Jesus uses that imagery. If you're eating a meal and you have, let's say, broccoli casserole for dinner, and you eat broccoli casserole, and, you, and broccoli's not my favorite, but I'll eat it, and I eat broccoli casserole for dinner, and then someone brings out the dark chocolate for dessert, and you eat the dark chocolate, and you're satisfied, your mouth has that lingering, delicious aftertaste of chocolate that lasts for a little while, Right? And all of a sudden you're like, oh, there's some leftover broccoli on the table. Why don't you eat that? At that point, that broccoli looks really unappealing. Though it may have been appealing earlier, maybe it's different for you. But once I've tasted that chocolate, there's no going back to the leftover broccoli that's cold on the table there at that point. In a small way, that's kind of what Peter is saying here. Jesus, we've tasted and seen that you are good. Jesus, we are satisfied in you. We have eaten, we have drank the imagery of all of John 6, that he is the bread of life. We feast on that. Why would we run back to anything of this flesh that profits nothing? Why would we go back to the, the, the stale broccoli on the table? We've got the delicious chocolate melting in my mouth right now. Why would we run back to anything else? Jesus, to whom would we go? You have the words of life. And so they're confronted with a question here. When confronted with the nature of true belief, will we walk away or will we see Jesus as our only hope? Because, friends, Jesus challenged the crowd... Here's what true belief looks like. Will you believe or will you walk away? He challenged his disciples. Here's what true belief looks like. Will you follow me or will you walk away? And he asked us the question as well. This is true belief. Will you walk away or will you see Jesus as your only hope? Friends, I can only remind, I can't stress enough. Remember, belief is not just intellectual. Belief we've seen over these last three or four weeks in John 6. Belief is coming to Jesus. It's turning from our old way of life, turning to a new life in Christ. Belief is gazing upon him, like looking at the Grand Canyon in awe and wonder of his majesty and his greatness. Believing is eating and drinking. That's taking Jesus into our inmost being, experiencing him as the bread of life. It is feasting on him. It's being satisfied in him. It is, if you remember last week, it's munching. They use the word feeding on him. It's being satisfied in him. Believing is all that and so much more. Believing is not relegated to me praying a prayer and then living like I want. Belief is not me going, well, I know Jesus is God and that's great. I don't want to go to hell. I'm done with him. Belief is something that changes us to the core of our being, who we are, and everything about us is changed because of that. And so, friends, with this idea that when we're confronted with the true nature of belief, will we walk away or see Jesus as our only hope? It's a question I have to leave you with this morning as well. We've been seeing week after week what belief is. What's your response? When Jesus calls you to forsake sins and walk in holiness, when Jesus calls you to love him supremely and love your neighbors yourself, when Jesus calls us all these things that belief entails, do you turn and run away or do you run to him? How about let's get it really practical for this last week. Think of the last seven days of your life. Whatever you experience, the ups and the downs, the mountains, the valleys, the good and the trials in this. In the midst of all that, were you able by God's grace last week to gaze on Jesus and think about his greatness no matter what was happening in the last seven days? Do you have such a belief that you're able to gaze at Jesus in the midst of this last week? Did you able to, again, last week, the imagery of munching loudly and being satisfied? Last week, no matter what happened, were you able to be satisfied in Jesus and his presence no matter what trial you were going through that you had Jesus and you were satisfied in him? Did you find your identity in the last week in Jesus and in Jesus alone? 
Were you pulled by the world or were you anchored in the fact you know who you are in Christ all week long? Did you enjoy the life-giving word of God last week? Was it like food to you? Again, I keep using the chocolate analogy. Maybe something different for you. But did you long for this and feast on it like like if you put that big chocolate bar in front of me in the office? Were you satisfied in his word last week? Did you have the hope of heaven no matter what happened in life? Did you experience the abiding presence of Jesus? What happened in your life this last week? Was there evidence of belief? And not just intellectual, but that type of belief that changes us. And friends, if there is, rejoice because it's all God's work. Like we saw in the text here, the, it is verse 63, it's a spirit who gives life the flesh is of no help at all. Friends, if you had that type of experience this last week where God's presence was so real, so rich, so satisfying to you, and you were delighting in him, don't take any credit for it. It's not because you were smarter, wiser, more holy. not because you have better quiet times than the guy down the street. It's not because of that. If you experience that, it's because of God's grace. It's because the Father has taught you. The Father is drawing you. The Spirit of God is bringing life into your soul. But if that's not been your experience this week, the question is, why not? We're confronted with the true nature of belief. Why has that not been our experience if we're missing that during this last week? Is it because there's some sin that stands in the way that we love more than we love God? Again, that quote I read earlier, to this day, many a man's refusal of Christ comes not because Christ puzzles and baffles his intellect, but because Christ challenges and condemns his life. Is there something that's standing in the way of you being able to believe the way Jesus believed and is some love of some sin in your life? Or if the experience I just described of, the, of what belief should like is not true for you, it goes back to the fundamental question, have we ever really believed I'm persuaded that the churches of our country are full of people who think they believe, but they really haven't. Much like the crowd here, these disciples of Jesus who really weren't real disciples. I think our churches today of our land are filled much like that because people have not understood the call of discipleship in belief. And so with that question in view, it's very appropriate for us to come to communion this morning. As we come to communion, I want us to have a time of reflection before we come to the Lord's table. Because this is a time for us to reflect on that question, am I really believing? Because this ordinance is for people who do believe in Jesus. And not just intellect, but a belief in our heart and life, taking Jesus, eating and drinking of him so that he is in our inmost being, so we are satisfied in him. And as we come to, to communion, it's appropriate for us to reflect on the seriousness of what we do. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 through 30, it tells us, who that Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. And so my encouragement to you as we come to the table this morning, we'll, we'll file up, we'll get, our, get the bread and get the cup, and you'll return to your seat. There's no rush to take it right away. You need to do some business with God. If your life is not experiencing the belief that we were just describing, don't take this in a half-hearted way. It's not something we do out of ritual or habit. We do this to remind ourselves of the gospel. The gospel that causes us to believe with a type of belief that changes, a type of belief that makes us gaze upon God's greatness in awe and wonder to where we're satisfied in him. I'd encourage you to start there and ask those questions. Why do we do this? Not just for that time of reflection, but 1 Corinthians 11 tells us back in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way also he took the cup after supper. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, this is a reminder to us of the very gospel that changes us. The gospel, what Christ and his sacrifice, his dying on the cross, his shedding of his blood, so that we might have forgiveness, so that we might have the type of belief that changes us we have just described. With that said, I want to say a quick word to our boys and girls, because normally during the school year, you guys are in kids' worship, but you're in here perhaps for the first time as we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. This is something that is for those who've trusted in Jesus and trusted in Jesus alone as our Lord and Savior. And so this is something that if you have followed Jesus and you have really believed in him with a belief that has changed you, that if, we, if your parents want you to, you're welcome to take it with them. But realize if you've never trusted in Jesus, if you've never repented of your sins and admitted to God, the very thing we were singing at the beginning of the service, admitted to God that you're a sinner, repented of your sins and desired for God to change you, confessed your sins, really believed in him, and you sense that God is changing you because you're a child of God. If that's not happened, this is not the time to come take it. Just come watch your parents and observe and ask them questions over lunch a day about it. But just watch and participate. This is only something we take if we know for sure that we are a follower of Jesus, a child of God, that he has changed us. And that's just not for the boys and girls. That's for all of us as well. And so if you're a visitor, it doesn't matter if you're a member of Gateway or not. You're welcome to this. If you have repented of your sins and have trusted Christ and you are believing in Jesus today, you are welcome to come and to celebrate what Christ has done for our forgiveness of our sins. Let me pray for us. Father, we are grateful for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel that changes us, the gospel that redeems us. And I pray this morning as we come to the the Lord's Supper, as we come to a place to celebrate and remember the sacrifice that was made for the forgiveness of our sins, I pray that you would stir our hearts. Holy Spirit, I pray you come open each of our hearts. If there is sin in our life that's keeping us from full fellowship with you, I pray that you would show that to us and we would repent before we take these elements. God, I pray for all those who are children of God in this room. This morning as they see the bread and they see the juice, and they're reminded of the, blood, the body and blood of Christ. I pray you would stir their heart with thankfulness. Stir their hearts with affections for you to remember the gospel for which has saved them. And I pray that you would just work in our hearts as only you can. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.